0: to Changing Reels, a bi-weekly podcast that celebrates diversity in cinema, both in front of and behind the camera, by revisiting overlooked and underappreciated classics, or at least in our opinion, classics, and exploring <laughs> their pop culture significance. My name is Courtney Small.
1: And I'm Andrew Hathaway, I guess ready to get into a debate about what a classic is.
0: I f- figure this whole series is debating <laughs> what we consider classics. Our show is hosted by the fine folks at modernsuperior.com. We highly recommend that you go visit their website, discover a slew of other great podcasts, and also you can find the great cover art for Each episode that is provided to us by Seth Gordon, you can find our show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, pretty much wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're on iTunes and you like what you hear, we would love it if you could give us a rating, positive or negative. All feedback is good feedback to us. Andrew, how are you doing today?
1: Excited actually for the movies we're going to be talking about today, as I loved all three of them, both your pick. Uh, for a short, my pick for a short, and then my pick for the movie overall, which I, I certainly hope that I would enjoy my movie beforehand, but maybe I was feeling kooky some week. Other than that, very busy. We have kind of cut our respective websites out of the introduction for now, but my website, Can't Stop the Movies, is finally back up and running. So I've been going back, making sure that search terms are associated with every single article, getting things updated, writing A lot, and I feel great with it.
0: Once you get past that whole technical hurdle, which is usually a pain, it it does feel rewarding when you can just kind of get back to doing what you love to do.
1: Yes, and and on the subject of technical hurdles, I now am painfully aware of the difference between a server host and a server-managed host. So, folks, if you know as little as I do about server technology, go to a managed service if you can. Just a little insider tip
0: there. Right now, that is all technical jargon to me, but uh, (laughs) I'm I'm sure it's making sense to someone when it comes to websites and the uh, ins and outs of it. I know very little.
1: Well, we like our specialized movies, but uh, we know that our audience is broad and deep. So, uh, hey, if you have any thoughts on server management, feel free to chime in. <laughs> and how about you man
0: i'm not doing uh too bad it's been a busy week but similar to you I'm, I'm very interested to jump into these films because We've got a very interesting and unique selection of titles this week. We like to start off each episode by highlighting two short films that you can view online because, frankly, short films are awesome. So, Andrew, what did you pick for the listeners this week?
1: Well, I went a bit topical because I had read an article not too long ago dealing with Korea's obsession with plastic surgery. There is a Korean pop group who revel in their cosmetic plastic surgery, basically making their songs about it and enjoying their nipped and tucked and carved and perfected faces, or at least reveling in the artificiality of it. Admittedly, my first few attempts at finding the Korean short I wanted to talk about, Park Chan-wook's cut from Three Extremes, proved really difficult, and then when I finally did find a copy of just that available, it was about 45 minutes long, which was longer than I remembered, so I decided, time to challenge myself a bit. I've got this bit of information about the culture in Korea, so let's see what I can find. And that's how I came across Human Form, directed by do No and released just last year, that doesn't deal with the Korean uh, plastic surgery phenomenon or obsession, I guess, from a pop perspective, but from a very impressionable little girl's perspective and what i love about this is how everything is saturated in purple and blue it looks so ominous to begin with with the girl on her little carpeted mat on the ground and i loved that she was obsessed with drawing these extremely colorful unique faces because when we finally see what everyone looks like their faces are like cubist paintings or cubist sculptures very rigid and kind of like almost square-jawed heroes of old how everyone seemed to be molded in this very specific idea with prominent chins and it was so weird her bit of individuality was through her art that way i loved the mid-film shift too she ultimately grows up a bit and has to go get this surgery but it's really ambiguous as to what happens to her during the surgery. And it does cast into question everything else that happened in the short. Was this just this girl's dying perception of how she looks at all of these plastic faces? While I'm iffy when it comes to twists like that, everything else was so striking that it worked well enough on its own. And then when you take that twist into account, it added another interesting layer to everything.
0: This one stuck with me, and it's funny that you're talking about Korea's obsession with plastic surgery, because that's something that I was not aware of. I remember a few years ago reading several articles about how plastic surgery just kind of took off in Brazil, and how body conscious a lot of the the Brazilian, at least the 20-somethings are. It was kind of interesting to get this perspective from a, a Korean point of view. And one of the things that I liked about this film is that it's creepy, but the social commentary hits all the right notes. I didn't really get the sense that there was a major twist. I interpreted it more as she was so desperate to be like everyone else and get to the surgery that everyone else was that she went to extremes, you know, be it the experimental research route, and it didn't go well. And I, and I like the fact that we are left to wonder what she looks like under all the all the, the bandages. So I thought that was a really interesting image. And even the makeup and how they created all the, I guess, surgically enhanced faces, it, it almost reminded me of, I don't know, of a horror film. I don't think The Strangers, but it, it felt like they would be those creepy guests that come on like purge night in a mask. They're walking around, this is now the new ideal beauty. And I, I found that really interesting as well
1: that's what's kind of weird to me is this idea of beauty. When you said there how it reminded you of something, I was actually remembering an old episode of The Twilight Zone where all the faces were concealed and people were talking about how ugly this woman is going to be whenever the bandages finally come off. And the big twist is everyone's face is contorted and disjointed in a way that we're not used to but in the context of this world is normal you know it it is kind of the ideal it was kind of cool to me how in her mind she was normalizing this by actually making the uniqueness of people's faces just something that's represented in her art so while it's not trafficking in something that is you know utterly unique to this short it's kind of interesting just to see how artists are handling the phenomenon And, and the director in this case funneling art through art in a way to cope with everything and keeping that bit of kind of big brotherly threat that everyone is under as they're basically forced to get this plastic surgery and so on.
0: And I also like that it's not gender specific, at least for the first half, I would say you get the sense that it's something that all the women in the community are obsessed with. The two young girls have the little sketchbook that they look at. They go to the clinic even though it's well above their price range when the main girl's at home with I guess her mother and I'm assuming it was her aunt or family friend might have even been an older sister they've all had the surgery and then the father comes in and you get this great overhead shot of the table and you never quite see the father's face because he's first he's wearing a hat then he's Harrison's face is covered by his drinking glass and stuff and then you realize that no it's not just the women the men in this society are obsessed with it as well and you start to see more and more men with that plastic surgery and i thought that was a really nice touch as well
1: as much as i enjoyed human form i loved your short so why don't you tell us a bit about it
0: my short is the 2013 film if i had a heart It was directed by the hassel brothers uh, simon hassel and matthew hassel who aren't korean they're from the uk and i guess they have ties to Ben Wheatley because he, he shows up as like the executive producer on this particular short. But this one is set in Korea and it follows a individual who has pretty much had a tough life from birth. At least 29 years ago, his mother basically left him in a coin locker and just abandoned him. And he's had a really tough life. He grows up and he's fighting in some brutal kind of underground fight circuit. And he rises to the top. And when he doesn't take a dive... Things go horribly wrong for him. Even though it's a UK film, it really captures the essence of Korean revenge films. One of the reasons I chose it is because it's pretty straightforward from a, a narrative standpoint, but visually it kind of festered in my brain. And I was looking at a few other possible shorts for this week, and my mind kept going back to that one. And I slept on it, and I woke up, and I was still kind of thinking about it, and just the griminess of it. And I said, okay, no, this is this is the film I need to talk about.
1: So when I was watching this, if I was able to extract a nickel every time my brain was going, this is an awesome shot, I would be crushed under a weight of metal right now, maybe needing to amputate my leg. Kind of a hint as to what we're going to be talking about with Memories of Murder later. This is just a magnificent tone piece, and I love that it was described as a neon noir, because the red and pinkish-purple lighting surrounding the man at the beginning set that tone nicely. It's actually kind of similar, though more purplish than pink, than the same lighting that opened up human form. The vague menace of the street, going from a close-up of his bloody face straight to a meat cutter. That's not an impossible-to-decipher editing metaphor. It's pretty much, I'm living in this meat grinder. And the dialogue, while it could be cliche or silly in another circumstance, is delivered with perfect, hard, semi-sensitive edge to it, that it ends up serving more as soundtrack than proper narration. And that, in turn, fits in with the rest of the soundtrack and how the pulsing of the heart that he talks about about how he feels as though he's heartless, but he's also got this philosophy of, you know, so long as your heart is pumping, you're alive and so on. But the thudding of the soundtrack, even though it's occasionally pretty, gets that bump, 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 bump feeling going in your blood. And then whenever the thump, the thump feeling of the soundtrack fades, the lighting picks it up and the lights come on, off, on, off, thump, the thump, the thump. And then when the violence starts, we still don't really see our protagonist's face. What we're seeing is the impact of the fists again as it cuts to and from darkness of the fight. Thump, thump, thump. It maintained itself so amazingly the entire time that when we get to that closing shot of the man stumbling, looking like he's about to go get his revenge, like he's finally found something that he's going to have a heart on to, fight for his heart in some way, you get that brief flash of light over his eyes. One of the first times that we actually just get a clear look at him and his determination. After the thump, the thump, the thump of the lighting, the editing, the action itself and the soundtrack, seeing that gave me a little sitting down hell yeah mo.
0: There's something about the, and I think you hit the nail on the head with the lighting, the way how they capture the griminess of the streets. Like even the neon opening feels dirty, you know, and it's just a simple shot of protagonists just looking through a store window. And it was funny because I'm watching this and when they had a brief shot of him in the fight, it was like, okay, this is a little graphic. But I walked away thinking, oh, man, that was a really violent film. And then I rewatched it again. I was like, no, it's not. That violent in terms of like what they actually show. It's just how they film it and how they light it that it, it feels so much more graphic than it actually is. There's one or two scenes where you're like, oh, that's kind of gruesome, but everything else, pretty much festers in your mind and you create the images. And I I love how they incorporate darkness just at the right moments. So you don't need to see all the violence, but you you know what's going on and it makes it even more chilling and there was something also about the simple shots of them filming a individual driving on the road at night the road is always used as like a a passageway. it could be moving forward retreating from the past and there's moments where you see the road and you think okay he's depressed things are going to happen and then you realize no he's actually in the trunk of a car <laughs> you know and, and bad things are going to happen and then after those things happen you get another shot of the road and this time he's driving this base is all bandaged and bloody, like, and he's saying the world is hell and whatnot, You're like, oh fine, this guy's making a run for it. And it's like, no, he's just getting ready to kick some butt. I, I really love that imagery that they incorporated.
1: And the audience implication there with the violence is extremely well done. In the moment when he is actually beaten by the guy who says that, you know, he was supposed to take a dive in the third round, which is one of the most storied cliches of Noir or fighter based pictures, but as the crime boss basically is beating him, it's unclear even with the shapes what's happening with the thunking because the light from the car that's illuminating this is so harsh. The only thing that's clear watching this is the intensity of his emotion, which makes his lines about him not really having a heart ring hollow. We kind of understand if he speaks in these hard-boiled, noirish cliches that they come from a place of pain. Every bit of this feeds back into his experiences in the trunk, watching TV, walking the street, cleaning up blood off of himself. It's almost tactile, because you are talking about how dirty some of this is, and we're going to see that again with Memories of Murder. I felt the griminess and the sweat and the taste of blood. My body just had such a strong reaction to the intense way everything was presented.
0: One of the things that I left thinking about, no matter what happens to him, no matter how many fights he's in, no matter how many crime boss he encounters, nothing will hurt him more than being abandoned by his mother. He's probably the most dangerous man in Korea at this point, you know, because <laughs> yeah. no matter what you do, unless you're his mother, there is nothing you can do to hurt him as deeply as he's already been hurt, you know? So I thought it was just captivating short film, especially visually, just visually striking. So that was one of the reasons I chose it.
1: I'd need to go back and see everything that we've talked about for all of our episodes so far. But, I mean, I'm going to rely partly on your memory here, too. I don't think I've had such a strong reaction to any of the shorts that we've had so far. Maybe The Giant, because of how off-putting that was. I'll just stop dancing around it and take a stance.
0: This is my favorite short that we've seen so far. I I just loved every bit of it. Wow, that's a very bold claim. Uh, Well, you know what, (laughs) listeners? Go back to our previous episodes, watch the shorts, and and let us know whether or not you agree with uh, Andrew's stance. I'm open for conversation and criticism, because
1: who knows, it could be something where my blood is getting the best of me here.
0: It is a wonderful short, so (laughs) we're going to take a break to change reels, and when we come back, we'll discuss our feature film of the day. As we're focusing on Korean cinema this month, our feature film today is Bong Joon-ho's 2003 film, Memories of Murder. Based on the play by Kim kwang Rim and inspired by real events, the film looks at Korea's first serial murder in history, which spanned, I believe, from 1986 to 1991. The film looks at this through the eyes of two vastly different detectives. Andrew, what made you pick this film this week?
1: This is going back... For me, in 2013, I had surgery for kidney stones. I unfortunately have chronic kidney stones. So I was in a lot of pain and on painkillers for a very long time. And during this time, I watched a lot of movies because I was laying there doped up on painkillers. So that seemed to be the thing to do. And one of the movies that I watched during this time was Bong Joon-ho's Memories of Murder. I remember only being able to kind of half pay attention to it, but there were certain scenes and shots that lingered in my memory. And a lot of film circles that I talk to and run with, they frequently go back to Memories of Murder, about as many consider it to be Bong Joon-ho's best movie, and he is no slouch when it comes to creating great cinema. He just had his English-language international debut with Snowpiercer, also in 2013. He's also done excellent movies like Mother and The Host. So I wanted to go back and revisit this, because I wasn't able to give it a fair shake the first time around, because of how distracted I was. I am so happy I did, this time just sitting here, taking notes, looking at the layered jokes, the insane amount of action that is going on in the foreground and the background at almost every stage of the movie. And when it does pause, just to give kind of like a painterly moment or frame things in the mindset of the characters, not just the two detectives, I was struck just how awesome all the shots were, all the concrete dirty with the bodies laying in them. To give an example of just the magnificent construction of all this, the opening sequence with kind of the innocence tainted when you've got a kid who discovers the body of the woman and all the fields are golden they're lush and the kid sitting closest to the camera on the cement tunnel that has the body of the woman inside of it and the two men just peering out the kid watching the men in this rigid structure with all this golden field around him then when we get to the actual police involvement, when the lead detective, Parc uh played by uh, Song Kang Ho, gets involved, how quickly all this golden innocence just turned to mush. All the feel that were um, so vibrantly lit beforehand are now dreary and they seem to be slumping over. That leads to this through line in Memories of Murder where establishments like the police, the media, even some of the restaurants that they frequent tend to ruin or start to decay the things that are around them. And what seems so clear in A Murder at the Beginning just gets muddier the more the authorities get involved. And there's a dark humor streak to that too, but the comedy that's used here is it's own topic. That was just one early sequence that stuck with me, even in my pain medication adult brain. And re-watching this, it's a foundational moment that just builds to a movie that is excellent in its scope and its specificity.
0: This was uh, my first time watching this film, and it's strange because while I enjoyed it, I don't know if I would call it his best work but granted i've only seen i think two other of his films i've seen Snowpiercer and the host but it's the one that over the course of the week since i i watched it it's it's really kind of been festering and i i'm starting to appreciate it more and more when i think about it and especially looking at the layers one of the things that irked me about the film on initial viewing was detective park partly because A lot of the humor kind of comes through him because he is so determined to wrap up this murder case, which is well above his head and the head of his local department, that he will use any means necessary to get a confession and just file this one away. And one of the things that struck me the more I started thinking about it and when I went to revisit it again um, recently was that... When he is focused on creating a lie or selling a lie, the camera always kind of zooms in. Like there's a moment where he's trying to coerce a confession out of Quang Ho, the individual with special needs who, for some reason, Park just decides, all right, this is going to be the fall guy. And they're out in the field, and you see as he's trying to coerce them and almost like feed him the lines of what to say in the confession, the camera zooms in on Detective Park, and it zooms in on the tape recorder, like really close. And, of course, it doesn't go the exact way he wants. He doesn't get the, the confession that he's trying to coerce. But whenever there's a shot of them finding a body or a person on the run because she's a victim, the camera does. A, it usually pans out and you get a wide shot. You, there's a part where they find a body in the field. Like, when anything that's factual, I noticed subtle camera moves where the camera would pan out and you would see the vast fields. And I think what irked me the first time, though, was just the fact that Park was so clueless. And in many ways, as you said, <laughs> he, you know, in your analogy of him uh, and, I guess, the environment muddying things is perfect because I kept thinking they would possibly get further ahead in their investigation if they actually did basic police work. He talks about how he has an eye for seeing through the bs and he can tell who's innocent and who's guilty but you never really see that when he's posed a question to identify which person is the rapist and which person is the brother who is turning in the rapist he focuses but you never get that answer because you know he can't do it and he does everything goes out of his way to basically mess things up it, it getting to the point where i was just kind of screaming at the tv it's like just <laughs> get him off this case <laughs> but i understand thinking back and seeing how everything progresses and how it uh, impacts his the partner that he's teamed up with it, it does make sense that he would be that way
1: in the context of memories of murder too there's a bleak joke that detective park isn't wrong in a very broad sense when the detective from seoul arrives who is basically the co-protagonist he's the serious one of the two detective uh, seo tae yoon played by kim sang kyung early on their styles are directly clashing and there are great bits of dialogue sprinkled in like when detective park tackles detective seo as he's just trying to help a woman up that's fallen down a hill. When Detective Park finally realizes who Detective C.O. is, they just have a two-question exchange.
0: Oh, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. Park says, how can a detective be such a bad fighter? And C.O. responds, how can a detective have such a bad eye for criminals?
1: Yes, and that's what Detective Park prides himself on, so specifically is being able to identify these this criminal element and dropkick it. I don't know if you noticed this too, but there is a strong line of drop kicks coming almost out of nowhere in this you, movie. You.
0: It is hard to ignore, like, you know, when, when the third detective comes in and he has to interrogate Quang Ho, he doesn't even say a word. He just comes in and dropkicks. Like, dropkick is is almost like saying hello, you know, or, or bonjour. Like, it's just, that's his, his way of doing business.
1: But to these elements, right? Detective Park, he is portrayed as this clumsy guy who goes primarily on instinct and is usually wrong. But one of the things that he's criticizing the entire 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 time, is this idea that a rigorous investigation, bringing in technology, bringing in self-professed experts, is no good. That at the end of the day, his instincts are no different than Detective Sio's more rigid approach. And the bleakly funny thing about Memories of Murder is that Detective Park is kind of right. When Detective C.O. gets an opportunity to take hold of a crime scene from the very beginning, I think it's the second murder that occurs in Memories of Murder. He's got his megaphone, and he's shouting at everyone, wait for the forensics team, and they don't come up with anything else. No clues that assist them in getting any closer to finding out who is killing these women. I love the point that you brought up about how the camera zooms in on Detective Park when he is constructing a scenario or a lie or uh, what he imagines the truth to be, which is probably going to be the most accurate way of putting it. At the very end, when Detective Co has sent out the crucial evidence that he thinks is going to finally end this. It's going to put their suspect away, and they're going to get their happy ending. The camera does the same thing with Detective Sio. It just zooms in slowly on his face when he's looking at this scrap of paper that says that the evidence was inconclusive. So you have that visual parallel between Detective Park, the camera zooming in on him, when he's creating a scenario, and that's exactly what's happening with Detective Seo in this moment. And it also echoes another moment of Detective Park's... ridiculous investigative techniques when he decides to take a large sheet of paper and some ink and spill it onto the paper because it will form the face of their suspect. And that ends up being about as useful to the investigation as the test that Detective Sio put out. Ultimately, Detective Seo, if he was in charge of this from start to finish, we probably would have a different conclusion. But I like that Bong Jun Ho is willing to criticize both things. It's not a truth is in the middle sort of thing. It's large institutions that are more interested in getting results aren't going to be Reliable, They aren't going to be there to help you all the time. And Detective Park, bumbling idiot though he is, he is trying to do the right thing, just doing it in a
0: very horrible way. There's a point where he has a theory that the individual who's committed these crimes could be a monk at a monastery. (laughs)
1: Yes!
0: (laughs) Because apparently (laughs) there is a belief that monks are hairless in the genital region. And he basically... Goes to like a bathhouse in the monastery just to spy on the genitalia. And moments like that, you just shake your head. You're like, come on now. I mean, they play for great laughs, but like, oh, this guy can't get it a single thing right. But then as to to your point, when Sayo thinks he has the individual, he still can't prove it. He needs to rely on forensics. He's unable to get anything concrete. So I I definitely see your point there. One of the things, though, that I noticed is there's a difference between the two men in terms of who they trust from a female perspective in terms of getting information. There is a female officer on the force who gives them some key information and park immediately dismisses her even their chief dismisses her as well and seo's the only one that's like no i actually think she's onto something let's investigate but then when the woman that park's sleeping with says the individual with special needs he was seen following one of the victims ah that must be the person (laughs) i'm going to solve it so i found that kind of interesting in terms of how gender is used because all the victims in this film are women
1: I want to hit on one thing very quickly before we discuss each of the detective's relationship to women, because that is a very good point. But that moment when Detective Park does go to the bathhouse is worth it solely for that smash cut, because what happens <laughs> is that Sergeant Shin Dong Chul, played by uh, Song Jae Ho, who is their superior, he asks Detective Park, "Well, how are you going to investigate this?" And no sooner does that line get out, that smash cuts to Detective Park intensely scrutinizing the crotch of every man who passes him in the bathhouse. Uh, that was just fantastic. But the way that Detective CO approached women, that was the weirder of the two. I actually thought that, in a way, Detective Park's approach was more respectful. He was willing to take the former hospital nurse-turned-prostitute, all-purpose medical woman, seriously. He takes the information there, and fitting in with that larger idea that all these institutions, they aren't always going to be perfect, he ended up being again, kind of right. He took the information he got from her in a very bad way, because he should not have been torturing the special needs burned fella, but that did end up being a crucial clue. Whereas with Detective Seo, he has kind of a patronizing approach. There's a sequence when they are following around the woman who ends up baiting herself for the killer, and They take refuge in this little shack during a storm, and a student comes in who is asking the woman, you know, what she does, what she's doing. And Detective Seo keeps answering for her. He doesn't actually give her an opportunity to speak and let her brag about her own accomplishments. It's like Detective Seo, because of his position in recognizing these patterns and actually being investigative takes it upon himself to deprive her of this moment. There's another part later on when the woman officer is assisting Detective Sio in interrogating a potential witness. As the woman who is assaulted, as we find out likely by the killer, starts giving her story, the camera again smash cuts out to Detective Sio just sitting there smoking a cigarette with the rest of this woman's testimony completely off screen. And from what we know about the way Bong Joon-ho uses the camera in these moments, how he likes creating these little subjective spaces in close-up, and then the factual in long shot, from Detective Seo's perspective, the testimony was useless at a certain point. He got the information he was looking for, so he went outside to have a smoke. And it's those little ways that Detective Seo was patronizing to women that, overall made him kind of worse than detective park even though Detective Park was such a bubbling, dismissive idiot.
0: That's interesting because I took that scene completely different than you did because I looked at it as he realized early on that the victim, due to her experience, was not going to speak openly to him, not just because he's a detective, but primarily because he was male. So when he calls in the female detective, I took it as they were having an open one-on-one while he was... Outside, he was sent outside to wait, and everything was being recorded on the tape recorder. That's how I interpreted that scene. I look at it as he was there for part of it and then took off. I thought once she started confessing, he was already outside because it was only the two women.
1: I need to go back because that could be a good point if I'm remembering incorrectly. But I think he was still in the room when the tape recorder started, and then he went out afterwards. I will cheerfully withdraw that point if that ends up being the case.
0: But also to expand on the two detectives interpret the testimony. I also found it interesting that males who were slightly effeminate or by their definition not considered strong enough were treated far worse. Like there's the encounter where they cease a potential suspect who has a affinity for female underwear. Immediately he is considered well this guy must be guilty and again they try to coerce him or at least Park tries to coerce him into fitting this narrative that he has created in his mind and the other victim who is probably the killer or at least has a better chance again there's the talk of like having very soft and feminine hand those who fit the manly traditional stereotype were either the types like detective so where they're rigid and they've got a certain way about them or they're like Park who just kind of use their gruffness to get whatever they want.
1: Detective Park and Detective C.O. are basically professional kink shamers. They can't imagine men who have sexual tastes that aren't normal, or if they have something physically wrong with them, or that they must have something wrong with them morally that leads them to commit these kinds of crimes, because no normal man would... Well, and I admit I don't come across this very often, but, you know, no no normal man would lay a bra and panties out in the middle of a field and then jack off while wearing panties of his own. For listeners, I am not shaming you there. I just do not have that kind of contact with folks in my life, and I feel pretty comfortable admitting I don't have that particular fetish, maybe? But that kind of goes to the movie-long critique of Detective CO2, that because of his very systematic way of investigating things, anything that is outside of the norm is more likely to be the culprit than any normal person. And that's also where it circles around to a critique of Detective Park, because there's that haunting last scene where Detective Park returns to the scene of the crime, also echoing with. Detective Park earlier was trying to pin the crime on random people by saying they must return to the scene of the crime. So in a way, he's becoming what he is targeting. He has a conversation with a girl who says that a man came, remembers what he did here years ago, and left, and that this man was very plain. Their philosophies are wrong. They're both completely wrong. Wrong In looking for these abnormalities, they end up ignoring bits of evidence that could have pointed to a seemingly normal-looking guy doing the crime, because in their minds, be it from this machismo perspective of Detective Park or this aberration-searching formulaism of Detective Sio, they missed it. They completely missed it, and these crimes now are unsolved.
0: Even though I was team detective CEO for a bulk of the film, one of the things that annoyed me about him was when he's witnessing Park trying to coerce a confession out of people that he knows are clearly innocent he does very little to stop it a guy could be hanging upside down he comes in the room says something and then he leaves like he does not step up at all he's like well the guy or the individual is either special needs or likes to wear women's underwear so they've got issues i don't need to defend anyway because getting back to that whole thing they're they're weaker they're abnormal so i'm gonna let this slide even though i know full well that they're innocent and that bothered me
1: It's signaled in the dialogue, too, because while we do get the the often visual of Detective CO standing by, letting these atrocities happen, and then kind of tutting folks in the background, when Detective Park is interrogating, I think, the panty masturbator and trying to convince him to admit to the crime. When Detective CO comes in, he ignores the scene. He doesn't do anything about the violence. What he does is he just asks the masturbator, did you kill this woman? And he says, yes, I did. Then Detective CO says, shut up. No, you didn't. He has his own narrative. So long as he's not getting his hands dirty directly, he is free to dismiss, criticize, and... I just like saying the term, so I'm going to use it again, tut-tut anyone who he perceives as being outside of his investigative norm.
0: Very true. And one thing I know it's touched on briefly, and and you had mentioned it also in terms of the the list of uh, establishments that decay, but the use of media, both the journalists and the radio corporations, interesting as well, because there is very much a show that the detectives try to put on for the media to try and present themselves as working hard and getting somewhere when they clearly don't have any relevant information. And even though they're doing all of this, we get a a line later on in the film where one of the suspects says something to the equivalent of, everyone knows you torture the innocent. Despite this great pageantry that you're doing, the general public know that you guys torture whoever to try and get a confession. And I thought that was something I did not expect from this film.
1: Well that's a hugely important point too because that's from the guy towards the end that detective CO is absolutely sure this guy did it and that also leads in with this great shot of detective Park detective CO detective Cho and sergeant Shin framed against this suspect that they're absolutely convinced did it the key twist to that line that the suspect gives at the end is even children know that you torture the innocent the violence that these cops are willing to turn a blind eye to and to perpetrate themselves is so vile that it is corrupting the kids that we see at the beginning with the golden fields being turned to mush
0: As much as it's a hunt for a killer, it felt more like an interrogation of the police. They don't have the proper tools needed. These guys aren't being trained effectively to handle these situations. Like, yes, this is the first serial murder they're experiencing, but the basics for crime, like the forensics, how you deal with scenes, everything gets mucked up. They just kind of go willy nilly about how they do things and then go drinking and eating at the end of the day with no proper, I guess, decorum or any type of structure. This is something that even a basic beat cop should be able to do. And I could see how even the young would look at this and go, "Well, well, these guys are idiots." You know, if if these guys are idiots, then we have nothing to worry about because it really did feel like a community on their own for a good part. Even though these guys were working to solve a crime, it really did feel like this was just a community on their own and they're being picked off one by one. And there's no one there who really understands how you're supposed to stop these things.
1: Well, I think that goes to the point, too, that you were making about how uh, Detective CO and Detective Park and pretty much the entire police department is putting on a performance for the people that they think are watching. Like, you know, Detective Co's rigid investigative structure is partly a performance for Detective Park, much like Detective Park's machismo is a performance for Detective Co. So that makes the, I think it occurs like in the first half when everyone involved in the investigation goes to a karaoke parlor and they get trashed they start singing badly fighting and (laughs) literally purging himself of the idiocy around him sergeant shin passed out in the background in, in another one of those amazing foreground background moments comes to life when detective park and detective co are going at it yells at someone to hand him the bucket so that he can vomit and then puts everyone in their place so i thought there was a nice little poetry to this intense confrontation that is one of the most honest moments and one of the most clear guided in terms of Sergeant Shin overseeing the investigation, happening around an event that's known for Performing karaoke, I love karaoke, but it literally means empty orchestra. So, this place that is the most empty of musical experiences is also the place where they're able to indulge their base instincts and actually get somewhere in their investigation.
0: It is a great moment, it's partly because of the humor, but also the thing that starts the fight between the two detectives as as park is basically saying well you know america they've got the fbi and there's so much land to cover when you're doing an investigation and if you're going to solve crimes that way then oh it's going to take forever that's why you need to use your brains and your instinct it fits in nicely with what we were discussing in terms of the instinct versus institution and both end up failing you As, as we see in that scene it ends up leading them to fight and nothing really gets resolved from that fight anyway
1: nothing in this movie gets resolved people keep dying and they keep twaddling about with either their machismo or their rigid posturing while everyone is suffering so it's a very deep flick and it's one that I'm really happy my drug addled kidney stone ridden brain latched onto. Because in addition to the humor, the dark streak, the commentary, so many strong individual moments, all the shots, man. I've mentioned a few that were my favorite, like the Golden Fields at the beginning, the full team finally interrogating who they think did these crimes. When Detective Cho ends up beaten at the bottom of a cement stairwell is another good example of people being broken down by a system that's supposed to protect them when they can't even protect other people from Detective Cho. Those are some of my favorite shots, sequences. Just you. I know that you were kind of conflicted on it as it went on, but did you have a shot that really spoke to you or something that you just
0: absolutely loved visually? There was a lot that I enjoyed visually. One of the moments and it's probably one of the most disturbing moments but i think it was one of the nights when it was raining and they realized that the uh, the killer strikes when it's raining and you get this woman who is walking near the field of like i think the one of the first or second crimes and all she's got is her umbrella and her flashlight because it's really dark and the way how that scene is shot because there's a couple of wide angle shots where all you see is the flashlight kind of combing the land combing the land and you know something is out there and she can sense something is out there, but doesn't quite know. And I thought that was great. The way how they film the the conflict, the scenes where, I think it's the... the, the one of the dropkick scenes. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I tried to think of how to eloquently put it, but there was a way how one of the there was a way they filmed one of the dropkick scenes. Was, That's funny, but also that was a really nice shot. You know, if you're gonna dropkick someone, that is the way to do it. The first time I watched it, I was conflicted more so because Detective Parks' incompetence was rescuing my view of the film, and especially how he felt more for his dropkicking partner than he does for a key individual who meets a gruesome end. You know, and <laughs> I don't wanna but...
1: keep laughing, but
0: <laughs> get all the drop
1: kicks in this movie.
0: There's a couple. There's at least three, three (laughs) prominent dropkick seeds. When I watched it again, and the more that I've thought about it, it, it's grown on me, and I like the direction that it took, and the fact that it's very open ended towards the end. At first, I was like, oh man, went through all that, and it's still very ambiguous. And then watching it the second time, I was like, no, it's great that they left it the way it is. So this is one that I will definitely revisit again, and I think my appreciation for it will grow with each viewing.
1: Dude, it says a lot about the movie that you said this was your first time with it, right? Yeah. And you watched it twice.
0: Yeah, that's that's true. That is true. (laughs) Like, that doesn't happen
1: very often. And any movie, even if it gnaws on your brain in a bad way or a way that you're trying to work through, you went back and watched it again, even though you're frustrated with aspects of it. That's what I love hearing. That's what I like talking to people about when they're watching movies, something that grips them. And they can't maybe explain why at the time but they feel compelled to revisit it. And you're talking here about going back to watch it a third time. Like, how many movies do you personally sit there and think, I'm going to rewatch this after you've watched it twice?
0: That are non-Fast and the Furious movies? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and are and Paul Thomas Anderson movies? There's <laughs> very few, very few, actually. It's uh, a slim list.
1: Maybe we can start some kind of Twitter trend with this movie, because you'd said something earlier about being on uh, on Team CO for most of it, so maybe we can get some kind of Twilight-esque Team Park or Team CO thing going. There's enough dark humor in this that maybe we could get Twitter involved? I don't know, <laughs> but that would probably be about as certain as the way the mystery ends. <laughs>
0: And I think the division of teams is probably what this film is speaking against, if anything, because, <laughs> you know, the whole, I am my own team, I can do things, I don't need this city detective coming in, and this city detective going, well, these locals are idiots, I gotta do this my way. That's what hindered them in the first place, so.
1: For my last note here, Meek completely missing the point on that, even though it's a joking proposition, I think is extremely fitting for this movie. <laughs> That
0: is a fitting place to end. Andrew, where can people get a hold of you?
1: Well, you can get a hold of me, as I mentioned earlier, finally at the reinvigorated Can't Stop the Movies. Writing every Tuesday through Saturday there now. I have a lot of 2016 movies to get caught up on, but I'm open for suggestions on anything you would want me to review. You can... Send those suggestions to me either by commenting on the website, commenting here, or tweeting to me at drew. I also monitor our Gmail account, which is uh, changing.reels.ac at gmail.com. How about yourself, Courtney?
0: Well, they can also reach us on Facebook and on Twitter at Changing Reels AC. And if you want to reach out to me personally, I'm on Twitter at Small Mind. Before I go, I usually like to give a shout out to those around the globe that have been showing us love. But today I'm just going to keep it local and give a shout out to all the Canadian and American listeners. We appreciate your support.
1: Yeah, we're across the pond this week. And I guess Across the Pond is doing it a disservice since we're talking about an ocean between us and Korea. But we love our domestic folks as well as our foreign folks. So thank you for listening here in the States and Canada.
0: So for Changing Reels, I'm Courtney Small.
1: And I'm Andrew Hathaway. We'll see you next time. This has been a presentation of the Modern Superior Media Network.